0: The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He, he causes me to lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters that restores my soul. Tim Laniak is a biblical scholar who has gone to the Middle East several times since 1977, each time for 45 years with a special interest in this ancient tradition of shepherding. He's followed shepherds around for miles. He's interviewed dozens of them because he wants a field knowledge of this discipline. He usually begins with a question, what does it take to be a good shepherd? The answers vary, most say there's no curriculum, it's more of an apprenticeship. Some say if you have a good mentor, you can learn this or start to learn it in a matter of months. The best answer came from a Jordanian Bedouin named Abu Jamal who said, what really matters is if you have the heart for it, if you do, you can begin tomorrow. I really liked that answer because I think we focus a lot, at least in college church, about skills and intellectual powers, and all of those have their place. But if you have the heart for it, you can start tomorrow. A few weeks ago, our staff started to pray for our church, those that are watching online, that God would raise up a number of people from our congregation to be shepherds, To the people around them. As we prayed, I started to get a bigger and bigger vision of this. I started to wonder what if our staff, instead of just running programs and chasing deadlines, which we all do, began to take seriously the call to shepherd the people that were around us? How would that change ministry in the 21st century? because it has morphed more than that. What if we could release hundreds of people from our congregation every Sunday into different disciplines around Grant County, all as shepherds caring for the people around them. What if every person in Grant County was only one degree from someone who was only one degree from God, because they talk to God and hear from God frequently. In one of our small groups on a Wednesday night, someone said, what if the entire congregation had a mentality of a shepherd so it was anywhere, anybody, in any time? God just puts people in front of us and we take care of them. I began to wonder, what if College Church as a whole were to shepherd other congregations in the next five to seven years. Because the landscape is changing, all of the things I read say there will be several casualties. Some say as many as 100,000 churches 10 years from now will no longer exist because of the climate changes in our country. So what if in this really rocky time for organized religion in America, Our church were to shepherd other people. Well, as we start thinking like this, our ideas get really big. And then when I get involved, they get impractical. So it starts by going back to Abu Jamal's great answer. If you have the heart for this, you can begin tomorrow. Because I know a lot of you feel like you want to do this But you don't know what you're doing. If you have the heart for this, you can start tomorrow. Do you have the heart, the want to, to look after three to six people in your immediate circle? And can you name them? And how well do you know them? The second skill of a shepherd, after knowing the people around them, is to feed them. When people are hungry, they look everywhere and they get into things they wouldn't get into otherwise. Jeremiah says, like sheep, they wander from every high mountain and high hill. And they forget the place where they used to rest. If you remember that to the ancients, temples and altars were built on high mountains and high hills, what the prophet might be saying is when people are spiritually hungry, they move from altar to altar, from religion to religion, to do-it-yourself religion, looking for something that will satisfy them. They invent religions in order to answer questions that they've been asking. As I contemplated this over the summer, I wrote a note to myself that said, a secular culture is not always the culture's fault. Sometimes it is the fault of the shepherd who cannot provide intelligent, thoughtful answers to people who have questions. The prophet Zechariah said, people wander and are oppressed because they lack a shepherd. He doesn't blame the people. He blames God's people. So I began to get more serious about what it would take To be with God in ways that allowed that time to spill over into my time with others. Laniac said, sheep, like people, are indiscriminate eaters. They get into poisonous plants, they eat empty calories. They literally kill themselves eating trash. And so shepherds, he says, in that area have to develop a sophisticated knowledge of different plants and shrubs. One study done among those shepherds said that most of them could cite by memory over 100 plants or shrubs and tell you exactly how they were used some of them are used for sheep, others for goats. Some are annual and some are seasonal. Some are used for medicine, plants that is, and others just for eating. And a shepherd has to have this kind of random access memory while they can, they can grab that information and use it with whoever they're with. Another study said there were as many as 270 different plants and shrubs just in that part of the world. And each part, each landscape has its own soil, its own climate, its own plant communities. So the ability to move from one community to another and discern what is being said and believed by those people is essential to the feeding process. Now, if you're like me, all of that doesn't make you interested. It scares you off. (laughs) You're like, holy cow. So I got to get a doctorate in theology? I don't really have the interest to do that. I'm not sure I have the firepower to do that. Two stories, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, uh, came to the rescue as I thought about this. And reflected over my own growth in this area. One is from Exodus chapter 16. Another is from Mark chapter 6. In one, Jesus feeds at least 25,000. Some say 600,000 with manna. And in the other, Jesus feeds at least 5,000 men plus their families. It could have been 15 to 20,000 people. In both of these miracles, one old, one new, there is a multitude, there's a miraculous feeding, and in both miracles, God himself is the shepherd, not someone else. Both of them mirror each other. The same thing is happening twice. In the first, God's people have come through the Red Sea, and God himself leads them into the wilderness. The wilderness, or the desert, they tell us, is a treacherous place. Temperatures can get up to 125 degrees Fahrenheit and then change by up to 40 degrees in just minutes. Outside of that, windstorms can come out of nowhere and literally blanket every living thing in sand, such that there is no recourse except to fall on your face and cover your mouth so you don't inhale it. It chokes animals, and that is just the weather. Then there's the predators, the lions, the bears, hyenas, leopards, and serpents that are always moving, always watching, and then there is your own limitations, your fears, When you're in an environment like that, all that to say that to the ancients, the desert was the most forbidden place. They believed demons lived there. It was their devil's triangle. When somebody went there, they almost never came back again. It was the bane of the psalmist, the exile of the prophets. It was an asylum for the insane, and it was a prison for deposed kings. The trouble is that according to Deuteronomy, God himself led them there intentionally. He had plans that only time in the desert could make happen. Deuteronomy said, he led you to the desert to humble you. He wanted you to be in a place where you had no allies, no resources, and no way out except for him. And then he fed you miraculously with manna or bread from heaven so that you would learn that you do not eat by bread alone. You live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how you stay alive. So the plan in the desert was this. God would rain down bread from heaven in the morning. He would send in quail or birds in the evening that would just literally land on the ground from exhaustion in the flight. They would catch them and eat. So they would have bread... (laughs) and birds, Chick-fil-A. As much as they wanted, for as long as they wanted, there were only two stipulations, and neither of the stipulations seemed to have anything to do with the menu. One was that you can only gather what you can eat for that day. If you hoard it, it'll rot. If you gather more than you need for that day and do not give some away, it will rot. So every day you are to get up and gather for that day only what you need, as much as you want. The second stipulation is that on the Sabbath you will rest. You will not get up in the morning and gather, because what you gathered the night before will not rot. It will last two days instead of one. So those are the stipulations. You must gather it every day except for the Sabbath. And as you would figure, there were some who tried to hoard it, and it rotted and the maggots came and carried it away. There were others who waited until the Sabbath and then got up in the morning and looked for the manna, and it was not there. This is how God feeds his people. By providing them not only what they need in the moment, but by teaching them how to trust him over life. He uses every immediate moment to teach his people a bigger lesson. You live by what comes from the mouth of God. Your instincts will tell you you should save some. Your instincts will tell you if it's there on six days, it will be there on the seventh day. But if God says differently, then you must deny your instincts and everything you have learned through experience and education and trust God's voice he can be trusted. If he says it will spoil, it will spoil. I don't care what the studies have shown. And if he says it won't be there on the Sabbath, then it won't be there on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter what experience has shown. When you know God has told you something, that is the truth. Say, we know this. You do today, but you'll forget tomorrow. And so will I. You will spend, as I will, the rest of our lives learning how to trust God's voice over our experience, our education, and our instincts. It is hard at any age to put all that down. And just to do what he says. But if you do it, you will live. It will go well for you. Because the laws of God are not fences that keep you away from something good. They are gates into something better as long as you see them as fences, you will resist them. But when it occurs to you, and it, 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 it will eventually, that God knows what he's talking about and he can be trusted with my future, you will do what he says and it'll go well. There's one other thing. There's always another thing. It's... In the manna is an entirely different economy. We are to wake up every morning and gather, and so there's ambition, but we are not to gather on the Sabbath, and so there is rest. We can only gather what God has provided, not what we have cooked up ourselves, and so there is trust. Nobody gathers the same amount, and yet at the end of the day, everybody has exactly what they need, and they can't have more or it'll rot. So you start to wonder if the manna is not an entirely different economy, one that is built on trust, ambition, rest, equality, equity, generosity, God is not only giving them food for the moment, he's giving them an entirely different way of life. It will take them years to get over the economy of Egypt and learn the economy of manna. God will provide for this day. In the New Testament, Uh, there's a parallel, as I said, to this. It's the feeding of the 5,000 and their families. And the same thing is happening here as was happening in the Old. Jesus uh, gets out of the boat and he starts to teach the people on the grassy slopes. And according to Matthew, he starts to heal just dozens of people, whatever their sicknesses were. And the difference between Jesus and his disciples is almost nothing until late in the day. Late in the day, they start to grow apart. The disciples notice the sun's going down, so they say to Jesus, Hey, you know, the hour is late. Uh, I think these people have had enough. Why don't you send them away so they can go to the surrounding villages and buy themselves something to eat? Jesus says, you feed them. You give them something to eat. The matter at hand here is the question of responsibility. Whose responsibility are these people? The disciples think they're responsible for themselves, but Jesus knows that they're sheep without a shepherd. Sheep can't take care of themselves. So he says, no, no, you're responsible for them. You feed them. And in this moment, if you're like me, you find yourself caught in this little story and you feel bankrupt. It's as if Jesus looks you in the eye and says, well, you've got these three to six names. Now feed them. And and you think, what am I going to say? So the disciples say, where are we going to get food to feed these people? Jesus says, well, what do you have? Go and look. So they run out and they start looking for the food and they come back and they say, we have found five loaves and two fish. According to the gospel of John, it all came from one boy. They found a boy with five small loaves and two small fish and they brought the boy to Jesus. It's possible he offered the lunch. Or they just took it. Then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, now have everybody sit down, groups of 50 all over the slope. They do that. And Jesus takes the food that they gave him. And he holds it up, we think, and he blessed it. Nobody knows what he said. There are 18 different such prayers in the Old Testament, but one of them goes like this We thank thee, O Lord our God, who sendeth us bread from the earth. What if he said that? What if he held it up and said, We thank thee, O Lord our God, who sendeth us bread from the earth? It was something like a eulogy or really a Eucharist, a word of praise over the bread. It was a way of saying, we thank you, Father, that this is enough, but it wasn't enough. There were 20,000 people out there, and we have five small loaves. It isn't enough until he blesses it, and when he breaks it, it starts to multiply, not before— When he breaks it, it starts to multiply, and then he gives it not to the people, but to the disciples who pass it out to the people. And Everybody eats until they are full, just like they did in the desert with the manna. They're doing it again on the slopes near Galilee. They're eating until they're full, and the disciples are picking up all of this extra food. So suddenly we go from where are we going to find this food to what are we going to do with all this food? In both miracles, the people are in the desert. Matthew calls the feeding of the 5,000 a remote place. In both miracles, God is present even though they don't know it. And God is compassionate. He cares about what these people eat. In both miracles, there is somebody else next to God who is handing out the food. And in both miracles, people are eating until they're full. In both miracles, something more is happening there. Than just the food. As I set them in front of me. And I wrestle with the question of. Where am I going to find something for people to eat? A few things. Came out of this. Maybe this will help you. This will not tell you exactly what to say. But you don't need that anyway. Because you couldn't repeat it every time. What you need. Uh, is not a fish, but how to fish. This is how words from God come to us. So we have something to say. First, it would help to remember that more people than we realize are in the desert. They are in a dry, arid, lonely, hard place. They are in jobs that they don't like, in relationships that have broken down. They are in friendships that are moving apart from one another. They don't always look this way, but if we look inside of them, their lives are hard. And so they're hungry. And some will run to other religions. Some will run to humor. Anything they can to quell the pain. Second, God has put a person next to him to care for these people the people in deserts are god's people they're not my people they belong to god he is the shepherd i'm not the shepherd i'm simply the under shepherd but it is god's desire to care for these people but he he won't seem to do it apart from somebody else but they're still god's people Oh, it helps me often to remember that these people that can be frustrating or people whose situations are always changing or people whose stories excite me are never my people. They don't belong to me. They belong to God. When I remember that, I don't feel like I have to generate something, like I have to be creative or really smart or say something nobody's thought of before. I just have to stand in the place, listen with both ears, one to them, one to God, and say what I think God is telling me. And that's the third thing. I have to give them what I have, not what I don't. What I give them is an overflow from what God has given me. He has multiplied things in front of me and then handed it to me. That's what I give them. What God has provided and then handed to me. So whatever your patterns are, and whenever you do this, there should probably be a routine in your life that puts you frequently in a room or the woods alone with God. The scripture is open. When you get alone, you will be tempted to just let your mind wander in a thousand directions. The moment you open the scripture and begin to read it, it focuses your attention onto what is being said. Read it slow. Pay attention to language. Listen to the way the prophets describe a person's predicament. They can say a page in a half a sentence, and their metaphors are powerful. Watch the way the Proverbs condense 40 years of experience into one verse. Follow Jesus around while he talks with the people that constantly interrupt him. And ask yourself, why does he say that? I would never say that. Read the books of history and watch what the kings have done that they shouldn't have. Or watch what the kings have done that God wanted them to do. And as much as you can, summarize what you're seeing in front of you into a couple of sentences. In my life, I simply write a key verse from the passage itself on a post-it note, stick it on the wall right next to the chair where I pray. Frequently, I look at the wall because it's becoming something like a concordance. Those are the verses that over time have moved me deeply when I meditated on them. Something happened in me as I read them, and so I wrote it down. That becomes the fuel or the food that I'm going to feed other people. Does that make sense? So you will have to find a time in a place in your life where you can just immerse yourself in the language of God. The more conversant you are and knowledgeable of Scripture, the more you will have to draw from. Finally, you will not get this all down in a week or two. This is a muscle. The more you practice the stronger it gets. The less you struggle, the more natural. It's like a language. If you can allow yourself to screw it up a thousand times, you'll start to pick it up. And then it becomes powerful. The third thing, and the last actually, is that please remember that what you're doing with the people that you have around you to feed them is you're not giving them new things to believe or new convictions to have. They will find their own convictions and beliefs. What you are doing is helping them to obey Jesus, the Son of God. Somehow that gets lost in this. I think, this is just my definition, I think of mentoring as helping people to find a flourishing life. I think of shepherding as finding that life in Jesus Christ. It is rooted in Jesus Christ. If I've taught them everything and not that, I have not shepherded. If I teach them that, they will eventually learn everything else that they need to know. I am teaching them what I am learning. How to trust his voice when everything around me says he's wrong. Because that will always be the case until we're in heaven. <laughs> then, then he'll say, see, I told you. And I am I am helping them to find a new life, a new world, a new economy, a way of living that is counterintuitive and countercultural. Almost nobody lives like this. But blessed are those who do. They really have it made. Toward the end of the Gospel of John, there's a powerful story with Uh, Jesus and his disciples. Jesus has died. He's come back from the dead. He's been alive for a couple of weeks and he has this habit of making these sudden appearances unannounced with his disciples. Peter was one of them. The night before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied him three times. The third time was to a servant girl around a campfire. When Jesus turned and looked at him, he was decimated. He got up and just walked away and wept the rest of the night. Can't believe I did that. Now, a couple of weeks after Jesus has come back from the dead, Jesus is going to make an appearance to that man and tell him that he still has a chance. So Jesus recreates the scene on the night of his denial. He builds a campfire on the beach. He looks out and sees the disciples in a boat trying to fish, asks if they've caught anything they haven't. (laughs) He tells them to let down the nets again, and they haul in over 500 fish. Peter is so overwhelmed, he jumps overboard, and he swims to shore and leaves his friends out in the boat. Jesus says, bring some of the fish, put it next to what I have. Take what you have, put it what I have, and we will eat. After the meal, there is a very awkward moment. No one has said anything, least of all Peter. I think it's still in his mind. Did he forget? No. Suddenly, Jesus breaks that silence, and he says to Peter, Simon, you love me? Simon says, can't look at him. He says, you know I love you. Jesus says, good, feed my sheep. There's a pause and he asks him again, Simon, son of John, do you really love me? He glances and says, You know I love you. Jesus says, good, take care of my lambs. There's a third time, Simon. Really? Do you love me? This time he's had it. He looks him straight in the eye and says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. What's odd is that when Peter's career began, he was told to fish for men. But at this juncture in his life, he is told to feed God's sheep. Since I began preaching a few decades ago, all of the emphasis in the church was on fishing for people. But of all of the lost people I know, I know a fair number, I can't name one who wants to be caught. But almost all of them want to be cared for. If you're a little older and you came up in the church I did, and you insist on the emphasis of fishing for people, at the very least, tend to what you catch. People want shepherds no matter how they act.